Breaking the cycle to step forward. Authentic conversations from lived experience and a professional perspective in overcoming abuse with Chris. Hi everyone, it's Chris Tuck here from survivesofabuse.org.uk. And it's Beverly and from Step Forward Practice. And together we're bringing you Breaking the Cycle to Step Forward podcast. And today we thought we would just share a little bit about us and why we feel we are qualified to speak about everything and anything to do with child abuse in all its forms mental physical sexual and sometimes you say psychological don't you yes because you know at the end of the day whichever form it it takes part in it does have an impact on us yeah so we just felt that by sharing our own backgrounds a bit about our lived experience not in detail but just to give you uh our backstories that you will then understand why we feel that we are able to talk about and have these open conversations about all forms of childhood abuse and even growing up in domestic violence households in in the care system and all sorts of things <laughs> absolutely so it's all encompassing because it's really nice to know about lived experience but also also you know, we're coming from a professional aspect as well. So we just want to break down the barriers and know that this is an open conversation for everyone. Absolutely. And in the future, we are going to be bringing on other survivors um, of lived experience. And we're also going to bring on to the podcast other experts. So we'd be really pleased for any feedback and any ideas that you may have going forwards. But we are going to try and stick to a 30 minute podcast because we can both talk for England. So let me kick off with the first question for you, Bev. What was your family background like? Could you just give us a taster of what, you know, your family background is, was? Yes. Okay. So obviously I have confidentiality. I won't be talking about names, etc. But um, I am actually the eldest of six children that my mum kept because she actually had two other children and they were adopted out. So I was the eldest child. And in that six that she kept, there were three boys and three girls. It was a very toxic environment. So I became a carer at a very young age. And also with both my parents, they did have... Um, a dependency on alcohol, which was never openly admitted to be addiction. But looking back, I can see that they depended on alcohol a lot. They drank every day. And if my mum didn't drink at lunchtime, she would actually get twitches and the shakes. So, wow. Yeah. So um, it's amazing how we saw that as children knew it, but just accepted it as the norm. Um, with that became domestic violence. But when I'm going to say domestic violence, I will say that my mum and dad, it wasn't that my dad beat my mum, it was that my mum and dad had actual fights between them. 
So it wow. may be that something started as a joke and next thing you know, something's being thrown at each or other, or it will be physically with, with the hands. So you can imagine we grew up in that environment and alcohol um, until we were taken away from, um, and lived in care. But even when we went home, we were going home to a toxic environment on a regular basis. So that's my background. Okay, so you've, <laughs> you've done a bit about your background and what it was like for you as a child. Um, but where did you grow up as well? Well, for myself, I was from, I grew up in Penge. So I was born in Beckenham Place Hospital and grew up in Penge. And then at the age of four, when we went into social care, moved to Alpington. And then at the age of 10, moved to Thornton Head for three years and then back to Beckenham. And then I stayed in the borough of Bromley when I got fostered and then when I moved into a hostel. So I was all around, generally, the borough of Bromley apart from three years. So, okay, and sorry. That's okay. So no, I was... Your family environment was quite toxic. It was quite volatile. Um, how did that make you feel back then growing up in that kind of, in that environment? And when you went into care, how did that compare? So growing up in that environment, because I grew up in it, I didn't think it was any different to any other family. And I found ways of coping. You know, I, I always used to make sure that the children, like my brothers and sisters, I say the children were ready for bed, etc., or they had food or their clothes were ready for them to, to wear. It was just fact. I knew what I had to do to survive. There was no consideration about what was happening. And then when I went into care, although that sounds like the most scariest thing, and for some people, sadly, it wasn't the best thing. For me, it was the best thing. I felt safe. I didn't have to do all the looking after. Yes, I did still continue to be a natural carer, but I had support to a certain extent, because when you go into a children's home, you still, it's a different dynamic. So for me, I thoroughly enjoyed it because it enabled me to live my life more as a child. But as I said, we went home regularly and that did have a, an impact. So knowing that your family life was like this and you didn't know anything at the time, but then when you went into the care system, you experienced something different. How did that, how did you wrestle with those two different environments? Um, I think the only way I can describe it is that feeling on a Sunday night, you know, before you go back to school. For me, it wasn't just going back to school. If it was every other weekend, it would be that I'd came home from my family weekend. So there was that push-pull because as much as it was a toxic environment, it was my mum and dad and every child wants to live with their mum and dad. So there was that that sadness that I was leaving my mum and dad. But then by the next morning, I was back into the environment of being in the children's home. So Sunday night for me was always a tricky thing at one time. Not now, but it was a, a very tricky thing for me at one time. You were saying, though, that when you was in the care system, you was able to be more like a child. So did you then recognise that, hang on a minute, it's quite lovely here. 
your words, it was good for you, but at home wasn't. Did you compare then the two? Only when I was 10, I was told that, you know, how how lucky we were that we'd be going home in three days time and we're going to go and live with my mum and dad full time. I didn't want to go and I was hysterical, but I didn't have the words to be able to put into, you know, to tell someone why. Why you didn't want to go home. Yes. So, you know, I was comforted, etc. but I was never actually asked. And even if I was asked, looking back, would I have known what to say? I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I just knew instinctively I didn't want to go back home. So how do you feel like your upbringing impacted you as a child, teenager, young adult? and now a grown adult. So just talk us through all of that. My resilience, well, (laughs) I naturally learned resilience and I've always been a homemaker and a carer. So I didn't really consider that. Um, What I will say is when I was 16 and I went into a hostel, it was only then that I saw other vulnerable young people in the hostel. And I suppose it was then because I was responsible for myself, I saw it as I would be able to make my own choices and I didn't have other people making choices for me. The rosy colored glasses lifted off in a way. And I'm not saying I got angry. I didn't necessarily get angry at that stage, but I knew then that somebody had to have a voice at some time and speak out on behalf of other people, vulnerable vulnerable young people at the time I didn't think it would necessarily be to the worldwide audience that we do now but I knew that one day I would use my voice when I was ready so again there was still that resilience and that strength that just keep on going yeah yeah how though has your childhood and your lived experiences impacted you mentally and physically hugely hugely Mm -hmm. and I didn't actually recognize this until when I look back now you know it was having children I didn't have children until I was in like late 20s early 30s and it was seeing them growing up and then becoming the mirror that hugely triggered me and because I was able to see myself as a young person of what I didn't have the lack of yeah which made me want to make sure that my children didn't ever have lack of it was they were going to have completely the opposite and that's going to be another podcast for another day talking about finances and that but I know other survivors who are parents want to give their children a so when you go without and you're then using all of your money to give everything that can lead to poverty it can lead to you know you not having nothing because you're providing everything to someone else yeah and that doesn't come just from a financial aspect It, it comes from an emotional because I knew what it was not to be loved not to be cared for so I became that natural empathic carer for everyone else yeah 
Yeah, don't we all know that one? Absolutely. <laughs> you're the fixer. You're the one that picks up everything. But what about yourself? We come on to that another podcast. Yes, another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When did you feel able to speak out? Um, and what was that like? Because we're often um, one of the myths is it's easy to disclose. You will be believed, but we know for fact that that's probably not always the case in many cases it's quite difficult to speak out to verbalize to disclose so when was that for you when did it happen for me to disclose um that I was sexually abused wow first started in my early 20s I was about 23 24 and there was going to be um, a family wedding and I didn't want to go because I knew my dad was I'd already taken myself away from um, my parents and so there was a huge fear and you can imagine that was it's all encompassing and at the time I couldn't cope with anything now I realized I was in a huge trigger I was in I just really didn't know what to do I was disassociating I was having night terrors didn't understand what was happening. And when I did disclose to my ex-husband years ago, his response was really good. But then I reacted like um, a tortoise. I put my head out, said, and then I retracted in. So it wasn't until many years later when my children became young, and as I said, um, they were of an age where it was mirroring, that I reached out again. And I then, although I was scared, I wanted to do it for my children. I did. I wanted to break the cycle. So as much as I was fearful, it was. I knew that if I didn't do something and change something, this was going to impact on my own children. And I wanted to try and stop that cycle continuing. So from there, the first thing I did was contact a charity. And it was one of the most scariest and the best things. And that was the start of my recovery. However, I didn't realize the impact, the physical impact, because looking back, I can see how ill I've been over the years. And if I'm a little bit about that, so people actually understand how this thing called Mm. trauma impacts us. Well, this is where it's quite misunderstood because we talk about mental health, but actually I like to say neurological neurological physical and emotional because it's the physicality it's our body trying to keep us safe when we're children that we learn to keep going so our our vagus nerve senses there's something not right in our stomach it's intuition and then our amygdala sends out the alarm and releases adrenaline so when you're always just trying to negotiate in, in my circumstances negotiate the household are my mum and dad drunk? Are they going to fight? If they're fighting, where are the other children? How can I keep safe? That's adrenaline and it doesn't shut off. And it didn't shut off because I was in that environment all the time. It only shut off when I was in the children's home. And then it would start again when I was back home. So it's on, off, on, off. And in the end, it becomes locked on. It's what Mm -hmm. we call the sympathetic mode. So my body learned at a young age to use the adrenaline to push me forward and for the resilience and the survival mechanism, which I used into my 20s. You know, as soon as I could, I 
went to work and I worked hard and I worked two jobs because there was no way I was going back to live how I had had been growing up. So one thing I didn't really understand was nurture and how to self-care and look after myself. So with food, you know, I knew what it was to have nice food, but I didn't know and understand really how to nurture myself as you would normally. So I had to learn to reparent myself. But of course, in my early 20s, I wanted to go out. I wanted to do all different things. And I just pushed myself so hard and continued to push myself. So I, I you know, I was always getting viruses, meningitis, um, you name it, shingles of the mouth. I was hospitalized for that, um, kidney infections. I was severe, I was chronically ill. So I wasn't ill most of the time, but then when I was ill, I was chronically ill. And I realized now I didn't listen to my body and I didn't know how to. Exactly. Why would you know how to when you can't link your symptoms to past trauma? Because you don't know what you don't know, right? Absolutely. And also, how would my childhood impact what was happening to me in my adulthood? It, it was, as far as I was concerned, that was my history. I'd left all that behind, shut that in a box. Thank you very much. This is the life I'm creating and I'm going forward. And that's what we, most of us do believe that's what happens but unfortunately locking it away in a box and not dealing with it doesn't work because it has that continuous physical psychological emotional impact on us because the body keeps the score right absolutely and you know we talk about triggers quickly and we are going to go into that into more detail but you know as I said with my children getting older with family things happening occurrences Mother's Day, Father's Day, you know, they're all different triggers. And I didn't understand that. I didn't actually understand what was happening to my body. You know, yeah, that's always been happening. Isn't that the norm? Relationships, mm. being intimate, you know, these are all things that looking back now, if I'd have been able to have access to some of this information years yeah. ago, it would have made a big difference. And that's the whole idea of the podcast is to break the myths and the stereotypes and have those open conversations so that hopefully younger people than ourselves, even though we are very young still, <laughs> um, get this information and they can work with it at an earlier age so that they don't rock up into their 50s like us, still dealing with impact. Absolutely, because you know, even when I look back and I've mentioned my children a few times, pregnancy, I had you know good pregnancies if you look at look at it on record but actually it was hugely scary for me and traumatic yeah which yeah. doesn't you know you, you don't understand at the time but I remember feeling like I wanted to pass out when I realized I had a baby inside me after a scan after disassociating from my body all those years mm, and again that's another podcast for another day because we want to really get down into the nitty gritty. Absolutely. On all <laughs> and they're my questions. So I'm going to ask questions back to you because we're okay. going to be really good and keep this to half an hour. Yes. Change. <laughs> so, Chris. Yes. What's your family background where you come from? So our listeners are going to find out now how so similar are we in our backgrounds and our locations so I'm one of six 
four mum with my mum and dad, four children with my mum and yes. dad, and then two blood half sisters with my mum and my stepdad. Um, so there's six of us. I'm the second eldest though, but I like you always felt like I was the one um, that was the the one helping everybody. And I felt that all of my life. Um, and it's really interesting that it seemed to be the eldest girl that is the one that picks up the pieces and does most of the graft when it comes to protecting and keeping everybody safe from our perspective. And I say that because I said to my siblings that I felt like I was the one doing all of that. And one of my siblings said, but I never saw you as that. And I thought, hang on a minute, but I was the one doing all of that. But it, so from my perspective, I was the one doing that. Okay. So I just want to clarify that because we all sit in different shoes, don't we? And we all see things Absolutely. from a different perspective. Um, so for me, um, I grew up in three domestic violence households. So there was mum and dad, they split when I was seven. And then my dad and my stepmom, I lived with them for four years, but my dad got convicted um, as a paedophile and went away to prison. When he went there, my mum got custody of us and we went to live with her and my stepdad for a further four or five years for me before I left home just before my 16th birthday. So didn't go into care, but I really wished that was an option for us mm children and we did with our uncle Mick go and work at children's home pulling up weeds from the bedding and when when we saw the children playing and being looked after I was physically aching Ooh. and jealous of what I saw that they were given but I know now that many children growing up in children's homes did not have a nice time they were further abused so when we had this conversation about you and your experience it was an eye-opener to me because everybody that I'd spoken to that had been in like the Shirley Oaks um, children's home the Nottingham care home system they've all been abused further abused so it was really lovely to hear that you had had a positive experience there for yourself Yes. Um, so where did I grow up? In Penge. <laughs> it's like sliding doors. And Heath and Croydon. So, you know, me and you, we were just doing the tango, I think, throughout those years of growing up. Um, my childhood, like yours, was very chaotic family home life. As I said, a lot of domestic violence, um, a lot of abuse on the children. Um and also, when we was living with my stepmom, for example, there were seven stepsisters, so no blood relation whatsoever. And it really was the survival of the fittest um, because they didn't want to be penalised by their own mother. They would report back to her on what we was and was not doing. And we yes. often got into trouble, but they were protecting themselves from her but we got into trouble because they dropped us in it for no reason. And then the abuse would be further exacerbated. Yeah. And I've had these conversations with some of my stepsisters and I just said, look, there was a lot of hate there growing up because of what had happened. But now as an adult, I could see 
that as children, they had no option but to do what they were told to do or made to do in order to protect themselves. So I think we need to have conversations around sibling abuse as well, you know, because when you've got two caregivers here or even one manipulating the whole environment, it is literally survival. And and you don't know that, like you said, when you're in it, you don't know that. However, when I went round to my friend's house and I saw loving, caring, food on the table in abundance, hugs, kisses, all of that, I was like, oh, my God, does this, what is this? What, you know, what is this? Because I've not experienced any of that. And then that really showed me that my household environment was toxic chaotic abusive and I didn't want to be there anymore I really didn't when I saw something different what age was that Chris would you say um, it was year four year five of primary school so again probably the same age as like you like 10 11 yeah but I knew I didn't know that that existed before then because our normal was just our normal but I knew I didn't like it I knew I wanted something different but I didn't know what that was and I didn't know how to verbalize it but at the same time I was so miserable yeah and even at school I wrote stories you know to the teacher read it and she said is this true I said yes she left the room came back and then told me off for having an overactive imagination oh. and when she did that that silenced me yes. yeah so there was many times growing up that I did share what was going on with the school with social workers with the police but nothing was done you yes. always got you know my brother ran away from home he got taken back to school he got taken back to home and then there was further abuse because he tried to speak up speak out um so you know when you are not believed not listened to or there's these preconceived ideas about runaway children or children that are impoverished for example yes um, by the institutions that should be protecting you it it does silence you and it does teach you just to shut up so when people go oh yeah but why didn't you tell that's because kids don't tell because they've tried to in their own way speak up about what's going on in their own way whatever that happens to be um but when you get that kind of response what are you what are they going to do they are going to shut down and be quiet and I think it's also true to say as well I don't know about you but I actually learned at an early age that adults weren't necessarily safe people. Yeah. Yeah. Because of their response. Yes. Yeah, completely. You know, when we spoke out about to the social workers about the stepmom, the warning beforehand was don't say anything because if I find out you have, there's going to be trouble. So there's instant fear in even speaking out. So when you've got the courage, 
and you spoke out and then those people didn't believe you and then they actually fed it back to your abuser yes. and then you got into trouble that it, it's just further yes. silencing it's not good so that is why i'm saying we always need to believe children no matter what you Absolutely. believe them until it's yes. proven they are not telling the truth and in most cases it will be the truth you believe and Absolutely. you deal with whatever if it's the truth you deal with it appropriately and if it's not the truth then that child still needs help because why would they make anything up around abuse why yes. would they absolutely and i've always and this is you know we've come from similar areas we didn't know each other back then but that's always been my belief as well absolutely so we've said about where you grew up and what your childhood was like you've touched on how it impacted you at the time yeah bedwetting living in fear not being able to speak up hiding from people um just constantly hyper vigilant and unfortunately that's how I am now as well um I'm not introverted anymore I do speak up and I and I speak out against anything that I see that's an injustice um that's just me because I've got that courage now to be able to say actually no what's going on here is wrong and I'm not standing for it yes um, that's me personally, um, but I'm still hypervigilant. I'm still um, wary of people. I don't trust easily. There's been impact in relationships. Um, and like you, when your children become of the age that you were when the abuse happened, or even when there should be, ha when there's happy times with you and your children at whatever age, when you was that age, if it wasn't a happy time, you also mourn that. So there's yeah. lots of triggers on a daily <laughs> basis from places you don't expect. Absolutely. And I think that's really important to highlight that because, you know, I've seen things written, you know, how to prevent triggers. And actually you can't. But that doesn't mean to say you live in fear all the time because yeah. you learn, you learn, you know, with different tools how to keep yourself safe so I just want to anyone who's listening mm -hmm. I just want to highlight that a little bit in case anyone's feeling a bit overwhelmed yeah absolutely but it's a process isn't it so I have what I call episodes of trauma impact so most of the time I can be in my opinion fine and then I will have episodes and then I will need to deal with that but yeah. you and I have both got good self-care and we'll talk about yes. that in another podcast but um <laughs> we've both got good self-care and we know what our triggers are and we know how to look after ourselves through those triggers as well yeah. um, and it's learning isn't it it is last learning. yeah yes last question um and you've mentioned it a little bit but when did you feel able to speak out and what was that like for you chris yeah, I have touched on that. Again, I was age nine when the abuse I suffered outside of the family, the sexual abuse, um, got reported to the police. So obviously spoke up then and that was very traumatic. And I don't know the outcome of that back at the age of nine because they thought it was best that it wasn't spoken about. But yeah. 
the impact is with me today because of it wasn't dealt with appropriately at the time. Maybe they didn't know any better. Um, I spoke out again at school about age 10. Uh, I wrote it down because I couldn't verbalize. So I wrote it and then I got that response from the teacher. Um, when else did I next speak up? When I was 15, 16, um, when I was sexually assaulted again by a family member, I left home um, because I felt like no one was listening. And then when my sister was 16 and I was 18, we went back to the police and reported further abuse. Um, and then again in 2016, disclosed all over again. And we had a five year journey through the criminal justice system. Um, unfortunately, no justice, uh, but we'll speak about that another time. Yes. So um, disclosing needs to be easier. It needs to be a process that everyone sticks to and adheres to so that children today do not go through what we've gone through. Yes. And, and th there's this thing that's come up as well by what you're saying about, that, about not being believed. Mm -hmm. You know, whether we be a child or an adult, we shouldn't yeah. have to prove that we're telling the truth. We should be believed regardless of your age at the time. Yeah, I, I truly believe that. Change. I really do. I, you know, because how are we going to change child protection for the better if we go from a place of, mm, are they telling the truth? You know, you know, because that adult is always more credible because that adult can verbalize, that adult can cover up, that adult can, you know, pull the wall over many, many people's eyes. Whereas a child, in my opinion, they, they haven't got the skills. They and don't know. No, no. So, well, we've thank you very much, Chris, because we've come to the 30 End. minutes and yeah. we want to finish for everyone because going forward, we've given a, a high, you know, overview of yes. how close you and I were, but weren't. So, yes, absolutely. Doors. Sliding doors. <laughs> <laughs> and now we will be doing different topics on a regular basis, but yeah. now. For anyone listening, thank you. Um, we'd like you to be part of it. We really would appreciate your feedback, any thoughts of what you'd like us to cover. Um, final word for you, Chris. Final word, yeah. We are in this to raise awareness, break those myths and stereotypes and have those open conversations that are often not had. Um, and we will come at it from that lived experience and from a professional perspective. So as Beverly said, we want you along with us on this journey to break the cycle to step forwards. So please get in touch. Beverly, your last words. Well, you know me about self-care. So anyone listening now, if there's anything when you've, you've finished listening, that just tap into yourself, take five minutes to just sit quietly and check in with yourself as to how you're feeling and think about what you need right now. Lovely. Thank you everyone for joining us today. We really appreciate it.